But like basically the 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 fundamental argument is so simple and mm-hmm. so obviously true. Like there's no meaningful way to argue against the notion that the planet must indeed have some limits and that we're we are going to or already have exceeded them at some point. Um and the the simple fact is is that I don't think like we're now in a time where that's empirically obviously true. It's like just palpable that we have exceeded planetary limits. It wasn't when the first edition was released. But I would say that the perceptions, like the sort of like global perceptions, aren't really that different between then and now. There's some differences, but it's more like the people who were already receptive to that notion in the 1970s are more fucked up and in more of a state of psychological crisis about the realities that we're facing but if you look at the overall like the proportion of the population that really has any kind of meaningful responsiveness to this or like even just like an acceptance that it's logically true it's not really that different than it was you know and and so that's i don't know that's always to me that's always like the most interesting thing about any of these like scientific or technical arguments is they all invoke some kind of unarticulated worldview there's always something about people's basic psychological framework that is going to determine whether they can like hear the message of a book like the limits to growth or not i don't know Hi, everyone. Welcome to Artifact number 40. I am joined by Arnold Schroeder. He runs the Fight Like an Animal podcast. Uh, I've been actually a subscriber and a paid patron for a while now. I recommend you guys check that out. Uh, most recently had a couple of episodes, I guess, a little mini series on, uh, I guess, a sort of a, a, the, the philosophical and practical origins of the Sasquatch myth. Right, which was an interesting uh, discussion. Uh, also, I guess in the bonus show that we're going to have after this, I want to ask uh, Arnold about maybe his thoughts on IQ. I'm noticing more and more this uh, IQ resurgence. Right, back in the day, what they used to do if you were online in the '90s and the 2000s, they used to have uh, tons of like jelking uh, and penis lengthening exercises online that you could uh, research. But now what they do is uh, IQ enhancement, right? People are obsessed with that instead. Yeah. And yet they're more or less in the same category as far as I'm concerned. Um, so we'll discuss that. I recently took a, a trip to uh, New Orleans and Arnold has some uh, uh, has some experience in New Orleans. And I found it a very interesting city simply because I, it's, it's kind of like a metaphor in some ways, I think for not only the present day of America, but uh, even the future of America that maybe we'll get into, uh, plus a bunch of other topics. And right now here, we're going to get into the 1972 classic called the limits to growth. This was, uh, uh, one of the kind of premier environmentalist books. In fact, I think it's maybe the best selling uh, book on environmental science ever right in terms of like being publicly known maybe only uh, a sound spring is more well known but they've had like a bunch of updates to this book uh, uh we both read the 2004 edition and most recently they have this like update 2022 
uh, into just kind of like, uh, you know, the modeling, right? It, it's based on the world three model of uh, just kind of resource scarcity, what kind of limits, just literally, right, the limits to growth, what kind of limits practically does uh, uh, the planet have? What would they look like? What would uh, a period of degrowth or stagnation look like and why? Um, and it's interesting because like you sort of see the responses to it at the time, you see the kind of victory declared over its uh, more, uh, I guess, uh, pessimistic predictions in the nineties. And now it's totally resurging, right? Cause it's been very much, I think, vindicated, even if some of the specifics haven't been vindicated, um, things like, you know, materially, we haven't run out of some of the things and food production is, is still, you know, uh, uh, I guess like sufficient, right. In the kind of like baseline sense. Um, but anyway, yeah, this is, uh, I think going to be an interesting conversation. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, you Arnold want to say anything uh, to start or maybe just take it away. I mean, yeah, you know, the limits to growth. The first thing that I'll say about it is that like I started my podcast after a quarter, a century of um, not totally consistent ecological like involvement in ecological politics because what's really true of, about living like a life of revolutionary organizing is it's kind of like having bipolar disorder like there's times when you're like let's overthrow the government and save the world and then there's times where you're just like all fucked up and you take a break but you know for a quarter of a century it's been like the you know the venue for a, a considerable majority of my sort of like adult energies and where I got in 2017 or so was this like this dual place where I felt like the external indications I thought we were probably past a bunch of ecological tipping points for a long time before then but in 2017 I started to feel like I was seeing them that they were palpable and unmistakable mm. and didn't involve theoretical inferences anymore and you know so I, I got to this place where I kind of like was no longer interested in like doing environmental politics per se as I had ever known that before and I wanted to just kind of investigate why there was such a radical range of perceptions of these issues in the first place, right? And that's ultimately what any meaningful discussion about the limits to growth comes down to, is like there's there's this basic reality, right? It's like people have pointed out like, oh, you know, they made this one resource depletion curve that didn't prove to be like precisely accurate or whatever, and it's like, yeah, okay. They said, you know, all of these curves exist within confidence intervals, right? Like none of them are like precise predictions. And uh, ecological scientists so often acknowledge, you know, they they not just acknowledge, but emphasize ab uh, above other, you know, people in other disciplines that there's always going to be like interactions between elements of a system that produce, you know, unexpected emergent results and all that stuff. Um, but like basically the 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 fundamental argument is so simple and mm -hmm. so obviously true like there's no meaningful way to argue against the notion that the planet must indeed have some limits and that we're we are going to or already have exceeded them at some point um and the the simple fact is is that i don't think like we're now in a time where that's empirically obviously true. It's like just palpable that we have exceeded planetary limits. It wasn't when the first edition was released. But I would say that the perceptions, like the sort of like global perceptions, aren't really that different between then and now. There's some differences, but it's more like the people who were already receptive to that notion in the 1970s are more fucked up and in more of a state of psychological crisis 
about the realities that we're facing. But if you look at the overall, like the proportion of the population that really has any kind of meaningful responsiveness to this, or like even just like an acceptance that it's logically true, it's not really that different than it was, you know. And, and so that's, I don't know, that's always, to me, that's always like the most interesting thing about any of these like scientific or technical arguments is they all invoke some kind of unarticulated worldview. There's always something about people's basic psychological framework that is going to determine whether they can like hear the message of a book like The Limits to Growth or not. I don't know. But yeah, it was really weird to, to read something that is so central, you know, to the environmental. Anytime I do something like that, anytime I revisit environmentalism that invokes like my sense of the past and the history and the trajectory of the movement that I spent so much of my life in, at this point, it always puts me into this weird emotional, you know, <laughs> it does a thing. I don't know. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, I, I'm feeling uh, somewhat similar, although I wasn't like involved necessarily uh, in uh, environmentalism. Uh, I guess when the 2004 update came around, I was I was in high school and I was like sort of first getting into like politics, political thought, that kind of thing, you know, from a, a left wing bias. Um, just kind of like, I, I, you know, it's interesting seeing the 1972 predictions and then seeing the 2004 predictions and seeing also now kind of like where we are, right? Because one thing that keeps coming up again and again in the text is even in the 1972 edition, right? Uh, the 2020s, right, are always kind of dealt with as a kind of, you know, fulcrum. Right. There, there's a there's a pivot point of some sort. In 2004, that is still, it's still the case, even if like some of the specifics uh, in 2004 also didn't pan out. Like they were, for instance, like far more, uh, uh, um, Optim uh, optimistic, I guess, is is the sense in terms of like population growth won't be as fast, right? Yeah. They were expecting like I think by twenty thirty or twenty forty, like eight billion people, and it's like you know we've already surpassed that. And it's one of those things where like I remember like you know uh, twenty years ago being like, oh yeah, they're saying we're hitting like six billion or whatever it was or seven billion people, and you know next thing you know it's like uh, like I remember when five billion was the thing, right? Um, I remember when that first happened. I remember when six first happened, seven, eight, right? And it's probably not going to slow down uh, in the ways that, uh, well, I mean, slow down a bit, right? But in terms of hitting that that peak number, we probably will have some level of growth, right? At least for uh, another couple of decades there. But yeah, there, there's something special about the 2020s that I'm really appreciating now right uh uh you, you mentioned how like for instance uh you're you know like uh the these these uh um you know kind of accelerations that we're noticing they're not just in the lab now right they're not just part of academic right. studies you could literally feel them the feel. last last week in new york city you know it's like you know it was like early april right temperatures are in the 80s right i don't have my air conditioners installed yet right i couldn't sleep um, walking, you know, I, I suddenly now have a, a, a subterranean termite infestation that I got to deal with because right. of the dampness and because of the heat, right? And it also feeds into, um, you know, what the book states about uh, not only material limits, but the fact that as you start hitting those limits, more and more resources and more and more capital is going to be diverted 
to dealing specifically with the limits and not not you know diverted to like growth or whatever but specifically dealing with the limits right now i have to spend money on i got to get rid of termites i got to do this i got to do that right i'm i'm still like right now i'm thinking about the fact that well i live in new york city how long can i really be here before there's substantial enough flooding right because i i used to live in coney island and there was flooding in my basement because of hurricane uh sandy right uh here you know living here uh the flooding is going to eventually reach i was reading about you know what climate uh, migration might look like and it seems like people that are doing actual like you know the people that design insurance right in a very kind of like factual way they're not political about it they're like all right we want to make some money here off of insurance claims how would this look like they're literally projecting all right we're going to have, you know, uh, X number of million of climate refugees coming from New York City to Philadelphia and then to Pittsburgh, right? If they're the ones doing this and they're, you know, they're not being political about it, they just want to make some money. You know, it's it's something that's now in my mind now, right? Um, am I going to be an 80-year-old man that has to flee in a fucking canoe, you know? Um, th these are real things that we're uh, thinking about now. And we're seeing these accelerations in real time, everything from forest fires to the fact that, you know, uh, the amount of money that is necessary to just keep the climate refugee crisis at bay, that's also increasing. It's going to oh, be something like oh. half a trillion dollars within, you know, within a, a 10, 20 years or so, right? And again, how much capital can you actually divert? Um, are, are we going to be dealing with some sort of, you know, uh, insurrection, right? Um, and if we are, you know, it wouldn't be an insurrection that I would necessarily feel, you know, uh, 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 you know, ethical about suppressing, right? Because it's like, well, I fucking, you know, uh, was able to live like a hog here for X number of years, right? And and they're trying to get get what's theirs, right? So we're seeing this play out in real time. So yeah, I mean, that's always been there's there's a number there's a variety of uh, of sort of like common places in the environmental movement that I have never subscribed to and one that I have heard my whole fucking life that I've just been really like are you sure is this notion where it's like you know I don't think some some variety of the statement I don't think we're going to see significant public uh, mobilization or political will to like do what needs to be done to address ecological issue x or y until things get bad enough that it feels like a real like palpable crisis and i'm like i don't know if that's you know in, in my observation when you want to like redesign the whole like energy grid or something is not when the lights went out because transformers are blowing up from the heat wave or you're breathing in so much smoke from the wildfire that you know like whatever it is right it's like once we're in the crisis mode it actually gets much harder in a lot of ways to start like really redesigning our lives to uh you know for like long-term outcomes because people are scared and desperate and uncomfortable you know miserable in some very immediate way and they just want to deal with it and um you know and there's like a few thresholds there one of which is like when whatever the ecological crisis is that pushes us into like actual conflict with one another mm -hmm. at that point i'm like you know societies that are in significant conflict are, are like you know that's when we always exhibit the least rational long-term ethical sort of like integrated systems level behavior or whatever and uh yeah the 2020s have always been um that that's true i really do feel like my whole life i've kind of i mean maybe partially because of the limits to growth you know it's like when I, when I look back on it, I'm like, 
where did I get some of my notions about what the future would be like in my head? And it's kind of weird because on one hand, it's like things are happening faster than I expected. And, I, and you know, like reading... And we reading keep hearing that again and again, right? It's faster than we expect, like literally every year, right? It's, every it's year. faster. Right. And it's every, like a thousand different details are faster than you expected. Yeah. And it's that whole thing. It's like the first and the second derivative, you know, it's like, it's not just happening faster and faster, but it's also accelerating the rate mm -hmm. of change itself is growing faster. And like, um, but you know, on one hand that's true. And then on the other hand, I'm like, wait, no, this is like, I did understand, you know, like I totally understood that the 2020s were going to be this kind of like inflection point that they are turning out to be. And, um, one of the ones, like one of the ways that the limits to growth curves actually do seem to be on track. And this has been true throughout the editions from the from the 70s to the 2004 um, and the update is they they show food going into a crisis before like all the other resource depletion curves are like farther out, you know, but the food, like the, the rate of change gets really negative for food starting in the mid 2020s. And we are seeing like, 2018 was the first year since the Green Revolution, right? Since World War II, that uh, global agricultural output actually started to decline. And now we're starting to see, like, we're starting to see significant deficiencies in various regions at various times. You know, harvest outputs um, are, like, actually going down. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of, like, analyses where people are like, yo, conditions are stacking up. Like, a, a number of variables are aligning in different ways that really look bad. And, and that's what's interesting is that it's maybe not even the mechanisms aren't what they predicted, right? They, you know, like ultimately, even though it's systems theory, it's pretty simple. They're like, oh, like when will we deplete, you know, so, like topsoil sufficiently, like, mm. or whatever, like when will we like literally run out of arable land or like not have the sufficient nitrogen to put, you know, throughput uh, into the system or whatever. Um, but what we're seeing is stuff like agricultural output diminishing because we're having temperature variations that are too extreme from moment to moment in a region. So like plants aren't having time to harden for winter because it'll stay really warm and then there'll be a sudden cold snap like as the weather gets more chaotic or like in the Central Valley of California where I've spent some of my life, like one of the world's bread baskets uh, you know, we're having wildfire smoke in the sky for longer and longer. Um, and, and like at some point, you know, like plants need light, you know. And so we're already seeing some plants like get tricked into thinking it's fall way too early and kind of like stop growing like way before their season should be over. And at some point that's going to align, you know, like that, like the concentration of wildfire smoke and like the tendency towards flooding that California is exhibiting, like those those factors are going to align to like wipe out, you know, at some point we're going to see like a region level food collapse. And like that can only happen a few times in a few really important places mm -hmm. before even people who live in affluent societies are really like experiencing, you know, like an actual like some real actual scarcity. And to me, that's the trigger, right? The, the trigger for like human conflict is definitely like food scarcity is enough on its mm. own, regardless of what else, what else is happening. Like regardless of how much of the world is habitable otherwise, like, I mean, history, history does not have a lot of examples of food shortage, uh, times of food shortage being times of like peace and equanimity and sober deliberation about like solving collective problems or whatever, you know? 
Although, you know, like historically, uh, food scarcity often came about, you know, specifically through like mass starvation events, which wouldn't necessarily be conducive. And that's the thing, like, if you look at like Steven Pinker or whatever, um, you know, he would make claims like, well, there actually isn't that much robust empirical, like historical evidence for uh, scarcity, you know, causing like major wars or whatever, you know, like before the 1800s. But it's like, this is true. But then again, you know, those kinds of events just led to like, you know, there are no soldiers of everybody starving. Now it's a little bit different. Now, you know, uh, someone in, you know, deep in, an, you know, the African, you know, Savannah, they might, they will understand there are populations out there that do have food, they do have resources, totally. and they're going to, if they could make their way, their, their way north, they will. Um, and, you know, it, it's very interesting because it's like, all right, so this book constantly harps on like, uh, uh, it being uh, optimistic in the sense that it's not uh, taking into account things like wars, right, and these kinds of other factors. But at the same time, you know, uh, and maybe it's because like I look at like market charts or whatever. But in general, what I found is that uh, there's something about looking at a chart where uh, it's it's almost kind of like a you know it's an a priori sort of like reality right in the sense that you know like a lot of people like for example let's say like day traders right there's this like conflict that you know between like the traders and the fundamental uh the people that can fundamentals like no don't look at charts all that matters is what fundamentally what's going on in the world and people that look at charts are like no, no no it's only the chart that matters the reason why i think it's only the chart that matters is uh if a chart is simply the representation and the sum of every human emotion Every fundamental reality, obviously, to some degree, right? It's not just it's not just going to randomly, you know, popping up. There is some <laughs> random walk, but not everything, right? If it's a sum of all those things, eventually, uh, it's going to placate and it's going to show all those things in the chart, right? And uh, in you know, like in so like uh, there was this uh, uh um uh, uh there was this a uh, paper by uh, Gaia Harrington, I believe, is in her name, uh, in January 2020. Where she's basically saying what you said, like where she's like, all right, well, I'm doing this assessment. And she's like a financial analyst. So this is another thing. I like looking at people that are perhaps interested in making some money because they're not going to take like political, like, oh, I'm a Republican. I don't believe in climate change, right? If if there is a kind of like, although I don't think her in her sense it's amoral, right? She definitely seems to have like an environmentalist streak. But you know, someone that's coming from that kind of business side of things, she's doing this analysis, and she did this in January 2020. She's looking at limits to growth, and she's modeling how well the empirical data has tracked. And she said, you know what? Um, it tracks it very well, right? And the least pessimistic things don't track. The most pessimistic things don't track. But generally speaking, the trend tracks. And she said something like, uh, in January 2020, she said 2020 seems to be the year where, in general, there is now going to be some sort of subtraction in uh, human lifespan. And guess what? COVID hit. Exactly. That, that's not supposed to be part of any, you know, like, you know, like a prediction model of like whatever, right, in the charts. But what do you know? It found its way somehow into the chart. Global lifespan has been cut, right? In the United States, it's by like a couple of years. Other places it's larger, some other places it's less. But the fact is, it has gone down, right? Food scarcity was not supposed to, you know, like these charts were not supposed to predict Russia, Ukraine. And yet, Russia, Ukraine happens, 
food scarcity, specifically from, you know, the kind of like Eurasian breadbasket, that's now kicking in, right? Who knows what's going to look like in the future. But, you know, in this weird way, like you look at a chart, right? Um, it, a lot of things seem to be baked into what you see would look like little random squiggles. They really are not, right? And I want to really stress this for people that are looking at charts, which is why like sometimes when I, you know, when you look at some of the models uh, uh, within um, the book, one thing that I'm personally partial to, like, so they have like various models where, you know, uh, you have like, you know, growth and human well-being or whatever, everything's going up, then suddenly there's a collapse, right? When you hit a certain limit and there's no more that you could do and you haven't prepared sufficiently, so you're going to have to deal with this kind of forced degrowth, right? Um, and one thing I appreciate is how they say like, well, you know, eventually the ecological footprint is going to go down. The question is how? Are you going how? to make a choice about it or are you going to be forced into it? So there's like, you know, there's models like that. There's an, there's uh, other ones that just kind of like forever go up, right? Which uh, I don't think is going to happen. But one that I'm sort of partial to, and I wonder what you think about this, it's, it's going up. Then you see this kind of like dip, a very scary dip, right? It's going to be very scary in a relative sense because although like it might not be scary if you lived a hundred years ago or whatever, if you're living through it, you know, as you're experiencing it, you know, something like this is going to look very severe in the real world. And then it sort of like dances around and maybe it levels off or it starts to go up again eventually. I'm sort of partial to this kind of like total, you know, scare, right? Because I do think we eventually hit a situation where things get so bad where, you know, whether it's an insurrection from the global south or whatever it might look like, you're going to have to deal with like a major dip. And, you know, that major dip uh, will especially be perceived uh, by people like in the global north, because if you're used to like a really high standard of living and now globally everything contracts, right? You're going to really feel that in a way that somebody that's maybe dealing with hunger their whole lives, right? Um, it's going to be a little different for them. So um, anyway, I, there's a lot there. I guess you could tackle whatever you feel like here. Yeah, man. I mean, that's something that even before I went back and read uh, this, the 2004 edition of Limits to Growth, and you know, and started thinking about it again. I've been, I mean, I read really widely for my work, and I've been reading a lot about collapsing societies recently. And something that is like really persistently true, um, if you're getting back before there's a historical record. But then I think you also see it in history is like, you know, if you look at like, like, you know, in the old world, civilization pretty much collapsed sometime in the Bronze Age, you know, like, like all, all, all of them, you know, Mesopotamia, Egypt, like Greece, you know, they all kind of just went away. Um, and, and there's a bunch of those of like varying, you know, like uh, of civilizations or or societies anyway, of like varying degrees of like, you know, that we're like popularly familiar with that experience some kind of major collapse. And when people try to piece together why, it's so interesting because it's almost never like one monolithic variable. Like there'll be this, there'll be a phase where academics are like, well, was it resource depletion or was it war or was it like in a lack of internal social cohesion or was it disease? And then at some point they'll be like, you know, what's weird and what you wouldn't necessarily expect is like, it actually kind of seems like this civilization got hit by all those things to an unprecedented degree simultaneously. And that's totally like, it's really weird. I mean, it's like, I don't have a convenient explanation for this at all, but it does. It seems like over and over again, and that that seems like where we're at again, where it's like 
like this, the mass societies, like technological mass societies are experiencing this unprecedented degree of like internal fissioning and sort of like, you know, like uh, just like sort of mutual incomprehension, like perceptions are just like more divergent than they've ever been before. All of a sudden there's all of these like threats, right? You know, like COVID itself. And then the possibility that a lot of researchers are really anxious about that COVID is going to imply some long-term immunological deficiencies that'll make other diseases. Which is being so denied. It's so being Yeah, which people just oh cannot deal with. No, yeah, that exactly. Is They're just lying about it. Yeah. The, 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 and that's a, yeah. that's a way that liberals, that's a way that the Democrats and the Republicans are, it, like, it actually really mirrors climate change. We're like, mm -hmm. there was this phase where the Democrats were like, it's appalling. You're not taking COVID more seriously. And now they're like, all right, we're just going to mm -hmm. stop talking about this. Exactly the same as climate change, where they're like, it's appalling. You're yeah. not taking climate change more I, seriously. I used, to know, like, I used to know such COVID geeks in 2020. Dude, they completely totally. forget about it. And yeah. they just like, they are just like, everybody was like, okay, I cannot handle this anymore. But yeah. yeah, I mean, there's like a lot of evidence that we're we're going to be a lot more at risk for a lot of like just disease, you know, for just like virulence in general because of COVID. And then, you know, obviously like the ecological crisis, you know, it's like it's like all of these things are happening and war and just like large scale a conflict between societies like all of these things are ramping up in a way where any one of them would seem sufficient to, mm -hmm. to like cause something we'd be pre pretty comfortable calling collapse and i it's weird it is it's it's like these things really do tend to converge and so yeah the i mean the 2020s you know it's like the time where we're starting to see these validations of these predictions, but there's like these weird, it's always like more complex and there's these weird like causal factors thrown in that we weren't expecting. Um, but, but then, you know, to talk a little bit about these different, you know, these different like curves that they imagine, um, I, I, I kind of agree with you. Like um, it, it's interesting to me because I feel like the curve, like the the scenario that they projected, that they modeled, that they were trying to hype as maybe like the most desirable was like the pure S-shaped one, right? It's where like the human population goes up to like a maximum and then it just flattens. People are like, okay, let's just like, let's chill out right here. And, um, you know, and uh, resource use declines, but they like model all this like increased efficiency or whatever. So they're like, ultimately the, the you know, the index of like human well-being or whatever, like that stays steady, population stays steady, but we reduce our ecological footprint. And then, yeah, like the ones in which there's a, like we're kind of right about at the vertex of the curve, we're like right at the peak and we're going to have this big scary drop, but then instead of a drop all the way into like fighting over radioactive rat meat, it's like, you know, it, it levels out before then and we like have some kind of functional society, you know, like some level of social complexity. And to me, that's actually the most desirable outcome because I think that there's so, something so, so to be so said. What, what, what level of collapse do you, because when I was showing mine, I sort of imagine it like this, not like the total collapse where we go exactly, to like 1800s. Exactly. Like, are you imagining a total collapse or are you imagining like a scary dip? No. Yeah, I'm imagining a scary dip, but not the full like yeah, yeah, we're just exactly. like yeah, 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 crashing, right? But I don't think the S-shaped curve is ideal because I think there's really something to be said for not riding uh right at the limit, right? Like we didn't know, we didn't know how sensitive the atmosphere was to carbon dioxide until it was maybe too late, right? Like mm -hmm. when this issue started being raised in the 80s. 
people thought we probably could go up to like 450 parts per million CO2 before we would get like, um, you know, anything like dangerous, like temperature rise, you know, people really didn't know, like, like it was in what, uh, the, the early, like the, I don't know, mid 2000s that they finally established that maybe like 350 parts per million was the limit beyond which we would experience some like runaway climate change effects. And that was after we were beyond 350 parts per million, mm -hmm. you know, like, I think there's something like really to be said for like, you would kind of want a let like less human population and just less like resource intense, you know, like less of an intense economy so that we had some margin of error to like, as we experiment, you know, in a world that where we're like hypothetically developing new technologies and whatever, it's like, we have like some actual margin of error rather than being like right at the, the crisis and chaos point and just like trying really hard not to exceed it. it also that would just make life easier in a lot mm -hmm. of ways, right? Like, like you would just like, Simply put, like people could just consume more resources per capita if there were fewer people, and that would really be easier in a lot of ways, you know. Yeah, this this um uh, uh this kind of like you know gradual you know people sort of like uh, reduce their consumption and all that. Uh, uh, I, I forget if this was specifically what um the name was in the 1972 book, but in Gaia Harrington's uh, study, uh, she calls it the stable world model. We're, and it's like a conscious choice, right? People reduce consumption because everybody comes together like, all right, we have to save the planet, right? It's like, totally. which is exactly why, right? It's so kind of unlikely to be the case. And, you know, and in her study, she's like, yeah, this clearly is not what's been happening, right? There has not been, you know, there's been some conscious choices, but not sufficient to really offset, you know, really what's going on. Um, to your comment about how, like, you know, what is it about the fact that, like, historically, when you look at, you know, total kind of like uh, collapse of society, civilizations, whatever, it seems to be just a bunch of stuff all at once, right? And I can think of like two answers. Uh, the one kind of like, I guess, you know, sort of naive statistical answer would be something along the lines of, well, generally speaking, we don't have, you know, let's say a thousand plagues all at once, you know, uh, very often, right? So when they do occur, it's usually going to be sufficient to destroy any civilization, right? So these are just kind of like statistical anomalies that just happen, you know, every once in a while, right? And I, you know, uh, I think there's some reality to that, obviously, but it's also kind of naive because uh, the secondary view of this uh, that uh, I think in more limited ways you could sort of uh, see today is the following. At a certain point, uh, if you kind of like push, you know, uh, your society in a certain direction, you're going to lose the ability to react to things appropriately, right? Um, it could be, you know, because of like political, you know, kind of like, uh, uh, you know, like everything just could be kind of like slow, right? And everything just doesn't really move. Um, it, it could be other factors as well. Uh, one example that I often give, like when people ask why I, I don't uh, vote for Democrats or whatever, uh, one example that I could easily give is, First, like you'd play up maybe to they're kind of like, you know, a uh, uh, liberal biases like, oh, in 2004, uh, would you have really preferred to have uh, Kerry in office or uh, a 2008 Obama presidency? And of course, most liberals would be like, of course, I prefer the Obama presidency. Right. So maybe it's good in retrospect that Kerry didn't didn't uh, uh, gain office. But the way that I view it is as following. Well, uh, if Kerry would have been in office. Um, the 2007, 2008, you know, housing collapse and all the, the Great Recession, it would have occurred anyway, 
not because yeah. it's like, oh, well, you know, I expect Harry to see something that nobody saw. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the following. Harry would have been totally incapable of preventing it from happening, even if he did know or responding to it appropriately when it did happen, right? And this is really kind of where we are, right? We did not get appropriate responses in 2008, right? Although like, you know, there were like some, you know, it, it was an austerity regime, but it was definitely better than the kind of austerity regimes that you might've had in the past. And with COVID, yes, we still clearly have, you know, an austerity regime in the, in the sense that spending is just kind of like going down um, with the exception of like, you know, in, interest hikes were supposed to slow down economy. Instead, what they did is they flooded uh, the economy with, um, you know, a very kind of uh, regressive form of stimulus, right? Um, and, you know, the, the the kind of COVID money ran out essentially. And, you know, we're not really responding. Like if we're creating like, a, if we're seeing this like, COVID as a mass disabling event that's occurring before our eyes. Um, we're also seeing the fact that nobody's really doing anything about it. If you do bring it up, people don't want to talk about it, right? This is really where we are. It's not even so much that, oh, you know, statistically a thousand things are going to come out of us and we'll die off. No, we'll, we're seeing bits and pieces of these, these things coming and we're not doing anything about it. Eventually we lose yeah. that ability, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, that that's more or less kind of like how uh, the Democratic Party functions, and I, I want to ask you about that. Like, uh, like uh, at a certain point, right? Uh, you you know, you could definitely blame, obviously, Republicans for inaction. But I wonder if at this point it's even you know worthwhile to overwhelmingly blame. Like, it's true the Republicans are the like anti, you know, uh, they're, they're they're the climate change skeptic party. But in practical terms, it seems to be like. Uh, going into the future, that might be less the case because like, if you look at Ron DeSantis, for instance, in Florida, they have so much climate shit going on that he has to constantly put like hundreds of millions of dollars for climate mitigation because, you know, it's a swamp, right? It's it's going underwater, right? If you have constituents there and you want to win re-election, people in those kinds of vulnerable, you know, red states, they might end up, you know, very much like sort of like speed running some of this climate stuff that, you know, uh, elsewhere uh, might be a little less uh, important to you, right? Um, so, you know, th there's a, a factor like that, right? Um, and there's also the fact that like, you know, uh, at a certain level, it's like, well, it's true that we have a climate skeptic party, but if you have a party that is on the other hand saying, no, 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 this is a big deal. This is so bad. And look, we're actually solving the problem right now with like, I don't know, the Inflation Reduction Act or whatever, uh, that's a lie, right? That's a lie that breeds complacency. It's a lie that breeds, you know, total inaction, right? And uh, who knows if long term this is going to be the thing that, like, because like if you had if you had half of the country that really did treat this so seriously, like we're not going to fucking vote for you unless you really have a true green infrastructure plan, that would really be the thing that changed the calculus, right? As opposed to, oh yeah, yeah, look, 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 he actually did something about it. Look, X, Y, and Z, look, this this piece of legislation, that, 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 right? And before you know it, it's like you wake up, right? And, you know, and it, it's not going to look like a, a, a huge, like, tidal wave uh, engulfing your house, right, in in uh, in Coney Island or somewhere else in New York City. What's it going to look like is there's going to be some storm, you know, your house is no longer uh, habitable, maybe you didn't have the proper insurance, and you're out of luck, right? That's really what it's going to look like practically, right? You don't have to have these like Armageddon scenarios. You see the drip, drip, drip occurring right now. Yeah, I mean, I always make this case that um, 
when you uh, when you interact with people who are in in interpersonally abusive relationship, you see these dynamics, you know, where people can't really come to terms with that very fact. And I think the exact same true thing is true at like collective levels, right? Like when we're in an abusive power dynamic at a society wide level, a lot of people just literally can't come to terms with that and acknowledge. And to me, people's people's continued insistence that the Democratic Party is going to radically change course and do something like take a set of actions that in any sense match their rhetoric on climate is like really strong evidence that people have some kind of weird there's no way to understand that except psychologically right that makes no sense you know and if you look at if you look at the history okay so like democratic presidential administrations in my politically active lifetime it's like you have clinton with the world trade um, you know, like the beginning of those world trade deals with NAFTA and the WTO and all that, which corresponds to, and this is like, you know, I mean, in a more broad global sense, this is just like a function of the, you know, the end of the Soviet bloc and all that, but it corresponds to an increase in the resource intensity, including the greenhouse gas emissions intensity of a unit of economic activity by like a huge, huge factor, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like our, our, our economy and society just got more poisonous and destructive, uh, not less under Clinton in this way that, you know, did not happen under HW Bush and did not happen under W right. And then, um, Obama, you see a doubling of U.S. oil and gas extraction. Yeah, that that collapses the prices, and everybody's using you know everybody's using dirty fuel again. What do you know? Emissions are good. It's you know, and completely locks in an emissions curve that's just incompatible with any you know. I mean, like any. So it's like, and again, it's like you don't like Trump didn't achieve anything remotely analogous. And again, it's like it's part. It's because of these like broader dynamics, like. That just happened under Obama because fracking came and like other forms of extreme fossil fuel extraction, like tar sands mining and whatever else came online during his administration, you know, but he still like he he intentionally like facilitated the construction of a bunch of infrastructure that was necessary for that extraction to happen, you know, and mm -hmm. so it's like whatever else those people have to say, I mean, at a certain point, like if you're just like if you're like comfortable with this disconnect between rhetoric and deed where you're like no no they really mean it this time like i know they did some bad things before but i swear it's all like an accident or a vast mistake or misunderstanding like that's on you you know that's because like your head is all messed up from being in this abusive relationship mm -hmm. and um yeah so i i mean i i just i think that notion that like there, there, i don't i can't articulate any meaningful fundamental difference in terms of policy between between the parties or whatever and uh yeah i mean i think that there is an argument to be made you know when, when we look at all of these different causes for collapse that are all kind of converging into this like one spectacular catastrophe i think there is kind of an argument to be made that that's something you would expect from societies attaining like a certain degree of material stability and affluence for a certain period of time right and it's like you see throughout the kind of like historical and the anthropological record it's like people's sense of identity in like a cultural group is often the strongest and the most expressed at a margin where they come up against some other group right like 
people build a sense of identity in contrast to other identities and other you know people right and for a while when a when a group when a society whatever like when a shared material reality between people is like sufficiently rocky and subject to sufficient like outgroup threat and stuff it's like people really maintain a sense of cohesion because of that and they're able to like undertake collective action problems you know like oh it's world war ii and we don't have enough shit all right like let's ration mm -hmm. and people will really do it you know and then but then at a certain point if things are stable and affluent for long enough people start to build their sense of identity in opposition to other people within their society instead of mm -hmm. outside of it and we are definitely at that point and then when collective action problems come along like covid or like climate change you know, if somebody, if one faction of society takes a position where they're like, oh, we got to do something about this, other people are automatically going to react and be like, no, that's a crazy conspiracy theory. Like, no, we don't. That's part of your crazy agenda or whatever. Right. Because we, we enter this mode. And like, I, I do think there's, there's something to be said for this idea that like on a really broad level, like what we're going through has parallels and like the collapse of a lot of societies that just like got kind of you know, decadent or whatever. I know, I know that's like kind of right-wing coded terminology, but it, it's like pretty, you know, you can, you can map that out in terms of like neuroscience and stuff and be like, we just got too used to like a certain, like accessing a certain level of reward really easily, you know, without a lot of effort. Like we just didn't, we just kind of like got less good at navigating hardship and we got less good at like individual sacrifice on behalf of collective ends and here we are you know because yeah i mean i just don't like I, at a certain point i had to acknowledge in the course of my political work like it's all about there being a certain level of social cohesion like any any conceivable political response to the ecological crisis whether it's in institutional politics or whether it's a more like revolutionary approach it's all predicated on people having some kind of shared worldview mm. and like having some, you know, like sharing any kind of set of terms to understand the world in. And that's less and less true every day. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, and uh, one thing that, that I want to just like reemphasize about uh, the book is, uh, yeah, I mean, we said earlier about like, there's certain aspects of it are just like totally undeniable. You know, I think the greatness of the book uh, remains like irrespective of some of the like individual and again let's not call them really predictions because that's not so like first let's just say uh you know there's a difference between like modeling versus making a prediction right um right. people don't uh like lay people don't seem to understand that but then again it's like well you know how much of this is just kind of like a lay people decrying it versus i mean like a lot of a lot of the time right the uh economists and philosophers or whatever responding to it that should have known better, right? They were making these kinds of uh, uh, silly arguments, right? Where, um, especially like by the 90s, right? People that should know better, right? Like this didn't pan out, that didn't, didn't pan out. Uh, you know, a model is just like, yeah, it's it's just kind of like establishing parameters, right? Uh, parameters of possibility, right? You could sort of fall outside the bounds. You could fall uh, within the bounds. Um, models in some level, right? They're, you know, they're written in a way to be falsifiable. There's nothing wrong with the process of falsif falsification, you know, uh, uh, when it actually pans out, right? But we want to pay attention actually to, you know, to the trends themselves. And, you know, one thing that I appreciate, although like, obviously, you know, I, you know, I researched the climate and I've been, you know, thinking about politics and all of that for a long time. 
just reading it, uh, I I really kind of reappreciated just the very very basic idea, the, like just the basic idea of like material constraints, right? The fact that there is a planet, there is something called you know uh, finite resources. Right. Um, and, and also just kind of like uh, when they describe specifically what the interactions are uh, between so the, some of the limits, like uh, they're, they're, they're very kind of intuitive, but you don't necessarily think about them. Like, for instance, like, all right, let's say that you do hit upon a limit. Right. And you find a way to transcend that limit. Fine. But the fact is, if you transcend one limit, all that does is it simply provides yet another limit in the future. And then if you trans that, transcend that another, 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 you will, you know, eventually, right? Assuming assuming that even if you are like a very kind of, you know, uh, a, a noble and ingenious kind of species, right? Eventually, you're going to hit something that even if you do eventually transcend it, it's going to cause significant hardship along the way, right? This is why, like, I would consider myself when it comes to like anything in the world, environment, whatever, like I am cautiously optimistic in the sense that I do believe that five centuries from now, you know, we'll have a much, much better civilization than we have right now. But uh, I am, you know, unlike somebody like Pinker, I'm much like right now as we're living through it, I want to be able to focus specifically on those dips and those hardships along the way. Because again, even if you believe in this arrow of progress, the fact is like, as you're living through it, you're going to have moments of stagnation. You have to be able to identify those moments of stagnation as you're living through it. At a certain point, if the Democratic Party becomes like that stagnation, you're going to have to say it and you're going to have to act accordingly. I mean, the Whigs used to be, you know, stagnation when it comes to what what is the issue in the 1800s, right? It's slavery. Well, guess what? It's not slavery anymore. But the people that are just so willing, right, to just go along with Democrats no matter what, they would have been voting for slave owners in the 1800s. And they they sort of, you know, they're like, oh my God, how could you say this about me? That No way. But that's only because like, you know, they, we've gotten past that, right? Now we have a new thing to deal with. But in your time period, as you're living through it, yes, it becomes much more difficult to accept certain realities, right? Um, and one of these realities is like w- what happens with material constraints, right? What happens with these limits? And also like another very obvious observation that uh, I didn't quite think about before, but it's true. If you do hit upon a limit and it's going to cause stagnation, right? In in human welfare, uh, among other problems, right? Now you have resources that are going to both those things, human welfare, as well as how do we correct for this limit, right? That means human welfare is going to have to take a, a, a hit along the way, right? Even if the argument is something like, well, human welfare is going to take a, a, a hit so that eventually we could get back to baseline. That's that's going to be part of the equation. So, I mean, it's important to remember that, right? Um, and yeah, like no matter what the specific models are set along the way, like like if you look at, they had like a, like a 1973 film or maybe 1974, like Limits to Growth, where they had some of the authors and one of the big things in the movie was just over and over again, they were like harping on things like, you know, uh, you know, our, our stores of copper are going to disappear. Yeah, all of that, you know, turned out to be uh, not true, but clearly other limits are there that we're hitting upon and we're seeing them. You know, like it's one of those things where like people want to so badly nitpick and get on those those little specifics because the tr- that overall trend is just so scary, you know? Oh, totally. I mean, one of the funniest, like one of the funniest limits that turned out to just really not be true is they, in common with many, many other people, 
thought that there was a sharper limit on fossil fuel extraction mm -hmm. than there turned out to be, right? And then at the same time, they thought there was much less of a, a narrow constraint on the amount of carbon dioxide that we mm -hmm. could emit into the mm -hmm. atmosphere. So those two errors, you know, like when you sum them together, they don't spell less catastrophe, they spell more, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, of course, of course, I, I, I totally like, I feel like anybody who's like approaching the work in good faith understands that they're not like, they're not making explicit predictions. They're illustrating a dynamic and the dynamic is obviously like real, you know, and we're, we're encountering forms of it, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. There's um, an amazing kind of like compliment, I guess, to the limits to growth um, is this book um, written by the systems theorist. I think he was trained as a physicist, but he's very much in that like systems world, you know, like Santa Fe Institute, like scene, um, this guy, Jeffrey West, and he wrote a book called Scale. And it's, um, it's like him kind of going through, you know, in general, sort of like going through these disciplines and taking a physicist's approach, like a physicist's approach to biology, where he's looking for universal mathematical laws. And he's like, oh, look, you know, like, it turns out there's a there's a law of proportionality between body size and lifespan, you know, stuff like that, stuff that biologists don't often do, you know, because they don't think like physicists. But um, but, you know, he, he comes up with this thing um, where, you know, he really he basically articulates these limits to growth, you know, that exist across this insane range of different systems. Right. That's the thing that systems theorists love to do now is be like, hey, look how we found this dynamic that applies to like allometric growth of like the bodies of organisms, but also the, you know, the growth of cities, but also, you know, like the behavior of whole economies or whatever. But he, you know, his trip is basically like he, in all of these systems, he does find these limits to growth. And that a way that he thinks about them is that as innovation increases, the number of crises it engenders increases, and you can often find solutions to them at first. And we already have a history of that, like the Green Revolution in the mid 20th century is one example, right? Where like industrialization created a level of population growth where there was gonna be global famine, and then they came up with like the kind of, you know, basically the agricultural techniques that were more or less still stuck with, you know, artificial fertilizers and all the rest where they like massively increased agricultural output for at least a few decades. And, uh, you know, so they staved it off. But his point is that you create like as you go along, you create crises faster and faster and faster mm -hmm. that you have to solve in real time, you know. And it's like if you go back far enough in the history of life there was a time when there weren't organisms that were capable of decomposing a lot of the molecules that organisms made and so it's like analogous to a pollution problem it's like it's like there were these organisms that were like utilizing resources but they weren't being cycled back into the system and so you could think of it as like a crisis this very like long-term crisis like the bodies of all these microorganisms are just like littering the world forever and then finally an enzyme evolves to take care of it you know and it's like that enzyme was allowed like millions of years to come into existence because mm -hmm. the system was working really slow and now we're at this point where it's like oh fucking plastics like let's figure out a microorganism that can like eat plastic or whatever and let's do it like in 10 years or something because other you know it's like like we're at this point where these crises are just like being engendered faster and faster so yeah 
I mean, some like we're going to transcend some of those limits with some innovation or another, and we've already seen that. And then we're just going to have a different crisis, you know, and we're going to have to solve it even faster. And that's exactly where we're at. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. Like, if you if you originally go what I referenced to, like you know, like a naive uh, kind of like statistical view of the world. Well, even just purely on that naive view, uh, that is like often shared by these kinds of like, uh, you know, like very sort of optimistic type of progressives. Uh, statistics would tell you that eventually, like, yes, you do hit upon uh, a limit that is too difficult to breach for, you know, X amount of time. And I mean, historically, obviously, we see this all the time, right? Um, we see this like in various kinds of wars that come and go right uh plagues uh you know it takes a while to get back to some kind of baseline there's nothing actually preventing us from hitting a, a similar set of problems and granted like maybe overall like people's livelihoods would be better you know uh, than they would have been under similar crises centuries back but generally speaking like it, it that's not the way it's going to be perceived as you go through it and like some of these charts like to the extent that they exist like if you could if you get like like a logarithmic chart of it um you know uh it would probably really put things into perspective for a lot of viewers because with the logarithmic chart you know you get to see the changes as not in the kind of absolute sense but as they're being experienced like if you could imagine like a chart of the s p 500 you know going back to the 1800s like for a while it just looks like a flat line and then suddenly it's like a vertical line essentially that doesn't look like much to you but if you you know you look at a lot log chart it's like well you see all the different like little squiggles that this is how people lived right somebody died in that squiggle somebody was born in that squiggle right somebody committed suicide because of this wick Right. That like maybe it's there's a wick that's just in a one minute time scale. Right. But some guy leveraged so hard that he lost everything. Right. All those little squiggles. Right. You, you they form some sort of baseline reality. So, um, you know, eventually just like, again, even just like pure, you know, statistical naivete, you hit a limit that is going to be hard enough that even if it's something to be transcended in the future, you're going to have to deal with you know, in a kind of like logarithmic fashion, like this, the, the feeling that, wow, we really are going backwards, going backwards, going backwards. And if we are used to a certain kind of level of, uh, you know, affluence or whatever else, um, what exactly is that going to do? Because like, think about how like, even with some of the, like, even if like, we're better off in many ways, than let's say like under slavery, there seems to be so many like social fractures. And sometimes I think it's like, why like over what like there's social fractures over like fucking like putting on a mask or not you know are you fucking insane there's there's a there's a political platform over masking and not masking it's just totally insane right it seems like the more that we're able to you know kind of like get into our own heads and abstract up from like base material reality you know the more that any kind of like you know, like found like foundational little like little squiggle, like any anything that's happening on the foundation that would normally not have an effect now it just knocks us off our off our feet, you know? So Yeah, totally. I mean, that's like I think again, that's that thing, like there has to be the only, literally the only scientist I've ever known of who addressed this directly was this guy, uh Peter Sterling. He's a neuroscientist. And he was like, we have to take seriously the notion that we just can't, maybe can't address environmental issues because our nervous systems have been rewired by consumer civilization mm-hmm. in this way where like a level of just like navigating like certain material, like 
you know, deprivations or like readjustments of, you know, our basic material reality that you would not describe as like massive hardships in any kind of broader historical perspective are just like maybe things that we're really not capable of in, you know, just like in our current sort of like dopamine regimes, you know, that our, our reward circuitry as it currently exists just cannot do voluntarily. And yeah, I mean, it's... It's really hard to know what um I, I you know I I don't know I mean like I I guess I always think about like to me like thinking about this thing and imagining a curve that that does go down right where there's like a decline in a bunch of metrics of like you know population human well-being whatever material throughput in the economy but then stabilizes before it's like annihilation of everything um to me, it's like there's this big question of like, what is the crisis that is sufficient to kind of like realign people's perceptions, but not so severe that everybody's just fighting for like minuscule scraps? You know, it's like to me, there has the I always imagine this kind of like golden level of crisis, right? That somehow like increases rather than decreases social cohesion and, and like you know just somehow and maybe it exists and maybe it doesn't but I feel like as far as sort of like if you're somebody who's like well what can we do to guide the system a lot towards better rather than worse outcomes to me that's really probably the only thing you can realistically think about right is that you're hoping to build something that can be kind of like asserted in a moment of tumult, you know, and provide some kind of framework for like, you know, I know I'm using really general language because I don't know, I don't know what it is. But to me, that's like, that's, that's the thing. That's, that's the big question. Um, but yeah, exactly. Like, you know, people, people have gotten, I mean, there's all, there's that like famous sociological research. Like, I think that goes back to like Durkheim or whatever, that people, commit less suicide in times of like material deprivation right like people committed less suicide during the blitz in england or whatever you yeah because you you have no season, time you know. to think about that bullshit you know you have no because <laughs> you don't you have, have time have no to be time alienated to, you have no time to be depressed <laughs> you have no time to be you know um you know it's, it's like one of those things like pe people are like constantly seeking you know happiness i want to be happy i want to be happy exactly. but it's like just just like fill your you know your your life with work and it's like you're not gonna you're not gonna be thinking about any of that but like for whatever reason like things are gonna get done and you know you're gonna feel good you know i don't know about like happiness but like that's a you know it's a totally yeah that's another thing like like civilization has um more recently geared itself towards these like uh uh goals like happiness that are just kind of like if you think about it they're very they're very silly right because being goals in and of themselves are very empty and ironically th those are the kinds of goals that would lead to more and more suicide you know um so, well and there's so, yeah. research in those very terms that um the more people focus on individual happiness the less happy they actually are right the yeah. less satisfied with their lives like yeah exactly it's a silly it's a very silly way to look at the world but like, yeah. I remember I, a way that I think about it a lot, I can remember being a kid and being like, really this leaving a huge impression on me. And then like, you know, it turned out to be a major sort of like frame for examining the world in adulthood was like, uh, part of my childhood was spent in rural Vermont and the power would go out kind of a lot in winter, mm -hmm. you know, and those were the, like, 
at some point I was like, wow, I really like these days better. Like I'm happier mm -hmm. on these days when we don't, this is fucking awesome. Like, you know, we only cook over the, the wood stove and like, there's no, like, I'm not distracted by anything else. I just like read books and hang out and like, it's just awesome, you know, but I was like very aware. I was like, yo, I could do this anytime, but I'm not ever going to get up the personal initiative to forego all of these conveniences and these like immediately accessible sort of like reward stimuli that having electricity offers. Like it's only going to happen when the power goes out on its own, but then mm -hmm. I'm happier, you know? And it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've, yeah, I've definitely noticed uh, situations uh, like that where, you know, you're just like you're stuck and you can't do anything other than read. And it's like, you know, all those uh, days that you feel like, oh, my God, I'm so busy. I don't have time to do this. I don't have time to do that. And then suddenly it's like, wow, I can, you know, do. I could really technically do whatever, whatever that I want to do. <laughs> right. If I only sort of like uh, shape up. Right. It, it really just it's like a personal thing. Right. It's not it's not it's not a it's one of those things where, you know, uh, the material constraint is actually you. Um, you know, like I, I did the show recently on uh, uh, Nietzsche's uh, The Gay Science. And uh, he has this uh, part in the book where he says something like, um, the uh, uh, w one of the uh, greatest innovations that uh, we've been able to come up with was like the advent of religious war. Uh, and, you know, this is coming from somebody that in some ways like hated religion, but he said something like, uh, because with a religious war, right, that, that proves that human beings have finally started to take concepts seriously, right? Um, and yeah, like, because cause it, it, it's just kind of odd how, you know, because we, we, you were talking about recently in uh, your last two shows, uh, like human nature and what we're capable of versus not capable of, uh, how the parameters of that are just always distorted, you know, by left-wingers, by right-wingers, right? You have left-wingers that say stuff like, you know, uh, we have absolutely no constraints, no parameters whatsoever. We could do whatever that we want, right? Without any uh, necessity to change incentives or like whatever. And then you have right-wingers that say like, no, 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 everything has to be a patriarchy. You know, we need to have uh, an al uh, alpha male with like a thousand concubines. Um, and that's just kind of the way of the world. Um, but uh, 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 realistically, right, um, uh, there are, you know, some parameters. And yet within these parameters, how concepts play this role, like th that is like fairly new, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think we've, I don't think we, like one thing about Nietzsche that's wonderful, especially for a left winger who would disagree with like much of what he says is there's enough there where uh, you could start building out your own systems and your own beliefs, right? Uh, uh, based on maybe some of those individual nuggets. And he really did see you know, so much about the future. And he, you know, we keep saying, you know, we haven't figured this out yet and it's going to be a while before we do, right? And, you know, he was talking about spans of centuries and that seems to be correct, right? Um, we haven't truly, you know, uh, dealt with what it means to be, you know, like conceptual animals, right? And how we get away, you know, uh, to ourselves, how we sort of, you know, like all, all, all these uh, uh, questions, right? Um, you know, everything from self-sabotage to, you know, just like human potential, right? Um, uh, it's it's a much more difficult set of questions than I think anybody is. It doesn't matter what your political beliefs are. I think there's always this incentive, no matter what you believe, to not really think about that really. Because again, it's painful, it's difficult, especially if like in the bottom line, like even if you're a left winger and you believe in like, you know, helping the welfare state, blah, blah, blah. 
the bottom line is ultimately whatever happens in life is more or less going to be up to you, right? Even if you deserve so many things that you're not getting, right? By virtue of the fact that you're not getting them, you know, it really falls upon you to either get them or not, right? There's no, you know, because when you die, it's like you either did these things or you didn't, right? So and that's also, that, that's, that's a scary thought for left-wingers, but also it's a very, very scary thought, it seems, for right-wingers. That's why they're so intent on control, right? There's this desire to control because they're fearful uh, of these outcomes. They're fearful of personal, they talk about personal responsibility because they're scared oh, of it, yeah. right? They're yeah. scared, they're scared of it so much, right? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that some of that, I think that some of their rhetoric about personal responsibility actually comes down to this like fear where they're, you know, where, where they like insist that if you just like behave reasonably, you can achieve whatever it comes down mm -hmm. to this like terror that that's not always true, right? Mm -hmm. That life just is going to throw things at you that are beyond, you know, and yeah. Uh, but yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, um, I feel like that, yeah, like that, that obviously applies to, to like, you know, the, the notion of ecological limits, like it, it would be this very unprecedented phase of, uh, of human behavior where we're taking, you know, where like abstract awareness about something actually like motivates how we fundamentally are in the world in a way that, you know, doesn't have a ton of historic precedent. And like, one of the things that the book really the one of the ways that the book really hit home the 2004 edition was like you know i'm i'm always like i'm super aware that most people with like left-wing politics do not have what i would call like ecological politics or like mm -hmm. more more generally just like an ecological frame of awareness like they're super uncomfortable with the idea that the world does have limits or that there might be like you know any sort of uh, and it's kind of like like in much the same way that a lot of people on the right have a perception of the police that comes from action movies, I really think a lot of people on the left have perceptions of ecology and technology that come from science fiction films. I, I truly think that there's something to be said for that notion. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so like there's the, it's so interesting to me to see how uh, I, you know, I talk all the time about how like we used to be able to talk about population and it wasn't assumed that, that that was like one step away from some genocidal discussion. And they do that in the 2004 book. They're like, you know, the answer to the like this crazy like population curve we're on is more education and a better, like a more equitable distribution of resources, right? You know, they're like poverty generates like significant population growth. And they point out something that the Steven Pinkers of the world won't look at. You know, they're like the more economic growth we have, the more inequality there is in the world. And so you're not going to get rid of like the, the population curve that we're on by just like growing the economy more, you know, but like some, that used to be something that was like really, really just normal to talk about. And now there's like such a left-wing reaction to like any discussion about population. And to me, this is like, this is just like any other aspect of our lives that we might wish to consider and rationally manage, you know, like, like, I, I just, I don't see why, you know, like the notion that the only way that population could ever be like assessed or anything could be done about it would be in terms of like some sort of horrible, like reactionary genocidal program. It doesn't make any sense. It's just not true, right? The other thing that we could do is just have a rationally deliberative, you know, process about it and be like, 
what's an optimal population <laughs> like mm-hmm. you know in 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 conditions of material relative material affluence and education it's like there are significant life you know like wellness trade-offs to having children right it's like not easy or fun in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and a lot of people don't want to do it when they're given the opportunities to pursue other avenues and i mean it just seems like really like kind of a no-brainer that we should be able to discuss that but that it, like that's something that's changed in my lifetime where like the left has always been really basically pretty hostile to environmental like thinking in a lot of ways but the, that population one has become way more pronounced and it's really too bad because it'd be nice if we could actually talk about it yeah there, there's this kind of growing convergence right uh, uh on like left and right wing thinking when it comes to population right um you know like recently like i uh, i saw like some tweets by that uh, richard uh, hanania guy right uh who who is he, he seems to be having this kind of little you know uh, meltdown over some like korean kid who was like oh you know like i don't want to have kids because i saw what my parents had to go through how they had to struggle give me all of these you know tutors blah 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 and uh, he compared it to like, well, that's like saying, you know, you're not going to have kids simply because uh, you can't have like a, you know, a, a uh, uh, you know, five star meal, you know, five times a day, whatever. But it's like, no, well, first of all, like in Korea, the baseline reality is like either you're going to get, you know, like all these tutors and you're going to get all this, um, you know, uh, training and whatnot, uh, or you're not going to be, you know, gainfully employed right or at least employed in the way that you want to be employed right so that's kind of like a baseline reality for a lot of people and the fact is as things are heating up like uh, one thing i'm noticing is that just everything in general seems to be getting much and more uh competitive right like we used to have some level of uh, i don't want to say like shared abundance right because uh, you don't want to like uh, downplay everything really was going on you know underneath that but uh uh it didn't have to be like even I don't know even something like having like a YouTube channel today versus five years ago, right? You know, COVID. If people are working uh, from home and they want to do this, they want to like you know things are getting more uh, competitive in that regard. You know, like I remember like seeing for the first time in my life, I started seeing all these like you know uh, YouTube ads in like 2020, 2021 about like day trading, right? And it's like the scammiest ads possible, but it's like, well, you know, if people are staying home and more and more people are trying to get into this, uh, things are going to get more competitive, right? Everything seems to be getting, you know, land land is getting scarcer, obviously, right? There's more people, which means that per acre, right? Just mathematically, there's going to be, you know, fewer acres for uh, X number of people, Um you know, th- th- uh, so like when it co- like, but when it comes to population specifically, it's like they feel like this is like this infringement upon desire, which it kind of is, right? I mean, if you know, they they always like bring up the China one child policy, and it's like, well, China sort of like did a major, um, you know, a major uh, positive for the world, and they don't even fucking appreciate it, right? They had to bear the brunt of like, uh, I, I I don't know, like to what extent, like forced abortions or whatever were like the norm or whatnot, uh, but. The fact is, you know, people in China had to bear the brunt of uh, all these uh, restrictions, but uh, they restrict, you know, who knows what the population look like now, 
and to what extent this would play into both, you know, environmental degradation as well as like, you know, into, you know, food scarcity or whatever else. So they did the world a kind of favor. Everybody's looking askance at it because it's a restriction on freedom. But when people start talking about like freedoms in that way, when it comes to like personal desires, it's like, well, at a certain point, it is true that your desires and your freedoms, they start to infringe on somebody else's, right? And it tends to be, guess what? People that conveniently are so, you know, you don't you don't get to see them. You don't have to deal with them. You don't have to think about them. They're just this kind of like lump and mass in the back of your mind. Every once in a while, you see them in a commercial. Every once in a while, somebody says a, a phrase like the global south. And although yeah. I say that phrase a lot, the fact is, I don't, I don't, you know, interact with people, you know, from Africa in any kind of like normal basis, right? Uh, uh, it, it, it is always going to be a kind of abstraction to me until it can't be any longer, right? So there, there's this kind of like very odd convergence uh, left, right on this question, and both would deny it, and yet, and, and they're both approaching it from like, uh, you know, uh, uh, this kind of like standpoint of like pure desire and like me 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 exactly. that's the uh, that's the other yeah. odd part like for for elon musk it's like this fucking it's like a mix of like genghis khan type shit where he wants to have like a million kids by a million different women right uh and also like he wants to have millions more consumers for his products right, right. and millions more you know going to mars like he, he to him like the ultimate dream would be like we saturate the planet so much that everybody has to go to mars because there's no other you know there's no other solution right so it, it, like there's all these like very weird incentives and also just like you know just like this like inner child coming out and you know there's nothing wrong with an inner child but when it's done for the most kind of like self-indulgent purposes like you have to be able to see through it right it, it's not anything more than that like i don't you know like i'm so tired of hearing people like well i want to have 10 kids like 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 just like you know it's just not only is it just kind of like show kind of like how, how hollow a human be like uh, who, who's the kind of like the, the poster child right now for you know too many kids right uh, mia farrow right 20 fucking kids she doesn't know she doesn't know their names half the time right she has to google like one time she googled a photo of mia farrow's black children to say happy birthday on twitter or like something like that right like it's just like it's so alienating right and it's the exact opposite of what they claim it is so um i i don't know i mean it's it's just like this fundamental thing, like somehow ecological issues got kind of coded. Like there was a time, you know, up until I guess about the 70s, ecological issues really didn't have much of a right left valence to speak of, mm -hmm. you know, like there were like, I mean, most of federal environmental law in the US was signed into law by Nixon and he was super like, mm -hmm. like avid about it at the time, you know, and uh, somehow it got like coded left, but it's really not. It's really like just a distinct set of concerns and considerations. And yeah, it like like part of it. And, and like it should it should be conservative psychology, though. You know, like finite resources. If you're a circumspect, like it's supposed to be conservative. As a conservative who is of that psychology, you're supposed to be scared of you know uh, things being finite, and you're supposed to treat the planet with respect, right? Like, and supposedly you're alarmed about social structures changing in chaotic new directions or whatever. But it's like, if you're just going to embrace every technology and every like, you know, be like, oh yeah, let's like mine all the rare earth minerals to make as many cell phones as possible or whatever. It's like, it's not concerned. It's fundamentally not conservative either. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, it's like, it's like just basically some, like some of the core psychology 
that distinguishes ecological thinking from people on both the right and the left is seriously just like an adult capacity to acknowledge that life isn't always like exactly how you want it to be. And you have mm -hmm. to navigate the material realities that you inhabit. And, yeah. um, and then, but then also interestingly, I, I feel like in terms of social structure, there's so much to be said for um, like there being a real opening of social possibility with like a lower human population density. And that of course is like relative to technology. It's relative to the mode of subsistence you have. But like, I really think that there's something to be said for you know, throughout human history in times when societies have become untenable in some way or another, like one of the ways to deal with that is to like have a revolution or whatever. But then uh, the other way to deal with it is to go somewhere else to just like set up shop somewhere else and do something new. And it's like, I really think there's something to be said for deliberately making sure that our societies, our resource consumption, our populations exist at a level where there's still like a frontier, like a hinterland, you know, where it's like, there is like, enough not just enough for everybody but more than enough for everybody and like places where people aren't like already densely you know inhabiting so that people can continue to just like experiment like that's there's a real freedom in that that any any vision whether it's right whether it's left but any vision of like a massively dense population where everybody's inhabiting like one monolithic system and there's no way out like even if the system is like pretty good in a lot of respects that's still like this fundamental constraint that i think i i think the world would be better without i really do mm -hmm. yeah um I, i'm not sure how much more we have to say about the book specifically but uh just like this general i guess climate uh discussion uh, so like what exactly, uh, like based on your research and your own thinking about this, um, uh, what, what do you think is going to happen in terms of like the final numbers, right? When it's all said and done in terms of like, cause uh, I remember, I forget, uh, I, I've been trying to find this paper again. Cause I, I read a, like maybe three years ago or so, uh, it, and it seemed to be very robust and it said something like, okay, well, it seems pretty obvious now that we're going to hit past right now we're around like 1.1 celsius uh, warming uh and there's like all right so that benchmark of 1.5 we're going to go past that um and most likely the parameters are going to be like somewhere between like 2 and 3.9 uh is that kind of like your sense like do you think we're going to be hitting those sort of like higher end numbers because just to tell the viewers what this really means like if, if we if we hit actually four celsius uh substantial parts of like even america are not going to be you know inhabitable any longer right uh, tons of like land in the world will essentially just be like you know a desert for solar panels right that will you know in a more kind of sustainable fashion you know feed uh what will be kind of not the global north but just more or less the north because that's where people are going to live Right. So that those are the implications of like four to five degrees of warming. Um, where do you think we might end up falling uh, ultimately uh, when it's all said? Yeah. Like, and what would the world actually look like? Because that's another thing. Like sometimes when I look at what the predictions are in terms of what the world will look like with this amount of warming, like it's not uh, always, um, you know, it's it, people disagree about this. What, what do you think is uh, going to be the kind of situation? Yeah, man. I mean, like I see. So I. And it's not the most satisfying answer, but I see tremendous uncertainty. Like I see a probability curve that has like, like a fat probability curve over a huge, huge range of outcomes. And th those all just involve fundamental uncertainties 
in the the response of the earth system to stuff we've already done or like definitely going to do and so like to give an example you know it's like um the end permian is the biggest mass extinction in the earth's record it came about largely through the liberation of like methane deposits you know that were like sequestered somewhere or other uh they're it's very clear that we have, you know, we have triggered the release of a bunch of like uh, subterranean, you know, and sub sea surface methane. We just don't know how much yet, um, but that's obviously a feedback loop, you know. Um, but then, but then, like, so that you know that gets into like, I I think it's possible, like that we will live in a world that doesn't have oxygen and where the vast majority of species are not around from what we've already done you know if the set of feedbacks plays out like it has at other times in the earth's past right but also um you know just like to take that example there's also these bacteria that consume methane that hang out in places where you know like there's methanogenic uh you know, like uh, whatever, like permafrost and uh, methane hydrates in the sea or whatever. And we don't know how those populations will flux and respond to increasing levels of methane coming out of you know the ground and out of the sea, right? There's just like so many feedbacks like that that have the potential for like a level of catastrophe that's literally like geological, you know, that's like, well, like maybe maybe the sky will turn a different color, whatever, you know, like it did in the end Permian or maybe not. And I just don't know, like, I think there's also just this real, I think I've only seen one paper that explicitly addressed it in these terms, but I think there's this big question about whether uh, we'll enter a kind of stable, like warm regime or whether we'll enter a long period of chaos. And like really either is super possible and a stable, a stable warm regime would mean that things reconfigure but there's still like plenty of habitable terrain, but chaos is like a lot harder to navigate, you know? And it's like, like the earth, you know, the earth had the level of atmospheric uh, carbon dioxide that it does today. Like, what, what was it? it? It was sometime, it was sometime when there were like mammals, you know, it, it like, it like was like when life was like somewhat fundamentally like recognizable, you know, like had some kind of like similar forms as it does today so like maybe we'll just get something like that that would be nice you know but i i think that there's like to me the essential point is that there's no way to know but that it is actually totally reasonable to speculate that we're gonna reach levels of like feedback induced warming that most life forms won't be able to endure like you you know like there was that paper uh last year that james hansen who used to run nasa's goddard space center or whatever you know he's like the guy who testified about climate change to congress in 1988 or whatever it was but he was like really considered like the nation's premier climate scientist for a long time and he and a bunch of other people wrote a paper in 2022 saying that they thought there were 10 degrees of warming baked into the system like from what we've already done you know just from feedbacks basically and like, I'm not saying that's definitely true, but I, it's definitely a possibility. It's definitely a possibility. Um, and so that like, unfortunately, like just the the range of uncertainties with the feedbacks means that I don't know, man, like, I think from like actual anthropogenic emissions, like before stuff gets so inevitably chaotic that we just can't emit at the same scale, like, yeah, we're probably going to hit somewhere more than two and less than like 3.5 degrees 
but the feedbacks are the thing that's that's the massive uncertainty yeah. that could add another like five six degrees to the equation and like pretty much nothing is going to survive that you know which again um, has happened in earth's history yeah well, one thing about the, the more kind of like chaotic uh, feedbacks is uh i notice not that much discussion of them i don't know if this is because like i mean just kind of like scientifically they're much harder to discuss like in objective terms uh because by its nature it's just kind of you know there's so many uh unknown variables there but a lot of it again is just kind of like it's one of those things where people would prefer to uh, sweep that under the rug uh i mean my instinct says that uh even with like i, I think like we'll definitely get past 1.5 and probably past two and you know, uh, could uh, I could very easily see us hitting, you know, anything as high as like three or even a little bit higher. Um, and like when you see like uh, types like, you know, Matthew Glacius or whatever discuss climate change, they're always framing it in terms of survival and extinction, like, you know, the mass extinction of human beings. But it doesn't it doesn't have to be that right. Uh, it could simply be, you know, it could simply look like uh, a depopulation event where you know uh, no longer you're making a choice yeah. to not have kids now you know uh, eight billion people shrinks down to four to three to two i mean whatever as that's happening you know you would probably have billions of climate refugees you would have uh wars and you know eventually i think you know pretty much any kind of uh uh because just kind of the nature of what human beings are like uh i can imagine human beings just always finding a way to exist and eventually restart a civilization like i i can't imagine for instance like you know no more human beings right but uh the discussion tends to be one of like uh the you know the the deniers right it, it they, they they tend to exaggerate uh to the the stakes the point of like pure extinction events right which yeah. is like now 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 you don't have to talk about you know, actually, you know, the, the things, right, uh, that need to be talked right. about, right? It's just like another way of like avoiding conversation. Um, and I guess the last thing I would ask here is, um, so, uh, like, what, what do you think about like the the rhetoric surrounding, um, you know, climb? Like, uh, I, I saw recently this thread by this, like, uh, I guess you call him like a progressive historian uh, who said something like, you know, I think degrowth is like the worst thing that's ever happened to the left. Like it's just such a bad phrase, right? And I, I guess, I mean, in many respects, like degrowth probably is terrible as a phrase simply because like the same people, you know, like uh, uh, that say degrowth would be the types to like, there's one guy, uh, I forget his name, that is like, uh, uh, he, he's always talking about degrowth, but he often writes articles like degrowth colon uh radical abundance it's like okay choose one degrowth or radical abundance right uh don't don't confuse people right so i i think there's something to the critique of how uh the uh, and I, that's the thing the people that are talking about degrowth are the people that are most likely the correct ones in terms of like saying okay eventually we're going to have to converge on a standard of living where you know the global north is going to have to experience a contraction global south is going to have to experience you know like a leg up and eventually we find a, a baseline we're going to have to find a way to reallocate like they tend to be correct about that but the way that they're discussing it might very well be like off the mark like what do you think about all that yeah i mean totally like i i it's not 
I don't like that terminal. Okay. So I think that like most people's responses to the degrowth language or whatever illustrates exactly that thing we were talking about where they're just like, it's just childish. I mean, they're just like, no, there's no limits. There's no limits. Right. You know, it's just that psychology. But at the same time, like, yeah, I don't, I don't like that, that, that phrasing was never like the thing that I was into. And even though maybe this seems like a little bit like a rhetorical flourish or something, but like, for me, what's true is that even though like it is strictly speaking, absolutely the case that I totally want very significant contractions of, a you know, of like the resource, the existing types of resource intensity that comprise the economy. Um, at the same time, I'm like super interested in, I don't know, kind of like pursuing novel possibilities for life, right? Like for like, I like, I do actually have this real sense of progress, right? That's like, like I'm so interested in the evolutionary journey and like the sense that we are on this trajectory of like ever greater sort of like complexity and knowledge of how things work and like, you know, kind of on the most fundamental term in the most fundamental terms like that we are this case of the universe becoming more and more aware of its own dynamics and like so like i'm like a real progress guy like i'm i'm like a militant ecologist or whatever but i'm also like i you know it's like i want us to like genetically engineer fungi that become our building materials and like you know sequester massive amounts of greenhouse gas with like you know, uh, new species that photosynthesize at a hundred percent efficiency and stuff like that. You know, it's like, so I guess like, to me, that's like more the right kind of like framing, like the right emphasis mm -hmm. is in this like sense of, of undiscovered possibility. And the degrowth thing to me does just kind of imply like, okay, like we've exhausted the range of exploration and now let's just like contract. And I'm like, nah, that doesn't like, it doesn't really appeal to me either, even yeah. though most of the, I do find the responses childish. I'm like, yeah, you know, it's not an appealing frame at all. Yeah. It's one of those things where, um, you know, uh, you, there, there may be so many people out there that are just like fundamentally correct. Right. Like, again, I, I do believe in this like arrow of progress. Right. Uh, at the same time, uh, everyone that is arguing for an arrow of progress now suddenly has like all these new incentives to ignore uh, periods of stagnation, right? And to pretend that a certain, you know, a piece of stagnation is not actually stagnation, right? It's just a wrong, you know, you get married to these like theories and you get married, like just uh, one of the most like liberating things I've noticed in my own life is just kind of like discarding uh, a lot of these labels, but also just like, yeah, I mean, I tell people at the time, like, yeah, I'm not a Marxist or a communist, but, you know, five centuries from now, I can't imagine that society looks closer to capitalism than it does to like, you know, unfettered communism, right? It's probably going to be closer to the latter, right? And, but you don't have to, you know, you don't have to now wed yourself like, all right, now I have to think about things in this way. Now everything has to be done in the rubric of like communism right now today. Like it's just, you know, um, uh, you, you have to sort of be able to accept things in stages, which means you have to be absolutely hyper-focused on what's happening around you right now. So you know exactly where you are, right? You could identify where you're climbing, where you're falling, um, and, and not, you know, not ignore that. Um, all right. So maybe we could uh, close this out and, and move uh, to the patron only show. Again, we're going to, we're going to talk about uh, uh, New Orleans. We're going to talk about, um, I want to talk more about Russia, Ukraine, and, you know, where this stands kind of like 
civilization like why did it happen now like there's something weirdly symbolic about all this um my own kind of like little history there uh left right divide sasquatch right i want to iq oh iq we're gonna we're gonna oh, we to gotta talk, talk about, about iq I, yeah. iq 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 and penis size right um right. but not but not in the way that normally iq fetishists think about iq penis size right it's no. the fact that you know uh uh they because it's no longer cool to measure penises they're measuring IQs now, right? As a kind right. of, um, you know, as a kind of a surrogate. So, all right. Thank you guys for watching and for the patrons, please stick around.